Grab your Bibles. Let's open to John chapter 18. We're getting closer to the cross in our series in John and the resurrection, of course. And as you've already heard this morning, thank you, Jesse. We will be having a Good Friday service on April the 7th, where we will read a big chunk of John chapter 19. And then two Sundays from now, if you can believe it, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, will be in John chapter 20. So praise the Lord, we're making good progress in our preaching series. I mean, unless the Lord comes back, we're going to get through it, right? It's going to happen. We're going to get through John's gospel. Okay, John 18, back up to verse 12. We'll just quickly look at where we were last Sunday, just so that we can get the context and the flow here. Verse 12, John 18, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So we looked at the profile of this very powerful and influential man, Annas, last Sunday. Now drop down to verse 19. Verse 19, the high priest, and by that John is referring back to Annas, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. So catch that. The two things that Annas is interested in are Jesus' disciples and his teaching. What he's trying to do is gauge the extent to which Jesus has become a threat to himself and his power, and he wants to know if this insurrection is, is widespread or not. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. So Jesus says, look, I have not whispered in the shadows. I have not hidden my teaching. I've spoken openly. You can talk to many witnesses. Verse 22. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? So he takes this as a disrespect to Annas. And Jesus, once again, pointing to the hypocrisy of this whole thing and the injustice of it, answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So that was just the first phase of six that Jesus is going to have to endure. Six separate phases of one extended trial, all of which are going to happen in rapid succession on, on the early hours of this Friday morning, what we call Good Friday. And after this failed interrogation by Annas, Jesus was then sent over to Caiaphas, the legitimate high priest, and that's phase two of the trial. And Matthew is the one who gives us a whole bunch of details about what takes place there, including the way Jesus' enemies had arranged for a series of false witnesses to come and give false testimony. But rather than throw pearls before swine, Matthew says Jesus simply remained silent in the face of all these lies that were being thrown at him. And of course, that frustrated his, his enemies, that frustrated the high priest. So at one point in the proceedings, Caiaphas shouts at Jesus, tell us, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And to that weighty question about his identity, Jesus chooses to respond. And he does so with great force. He looks at Caiaphas and he says, you have said it yourself. And then, if that wasn't shocking enough to the people in the room, he continued, And I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Can you imagine that moment? Nobody speaks to the high priest in that way. Nobody speaks this way in, in that type of a setting. The room must have exploded. Exploded. And so Caiaphas tears his high priestly robes, which is a huge deal. In Judaism, he tears his robes and he shouts for everyone to hear, blasphemy, this man deserves death. Now, from a legal standpoint, Caiaphas still has a, a problem. This confession from Jesus and this indictment of blasphemy had taken place at this hastily gathered assembly in the middle of the night. They had violated their own law and they knew it. So phase three, Matthew says that once the sun had come up, they all had to gather once again to check the boxes, right? To legitimize what they had just done to officially declare Jesus guilty and sentence him to death. So three phases there. 
Now, this morning, as we get into the rest of chapter 18, beginning in verse 28, John is going to pick up the story, transitioning from the Jewish phase, these three trials before the Jewish leaders, to the Gentile phase. And this is going to change a great deal. Steps 4, 5, and 6 are going to be in front of Gentiles. Now, before we do that, I just want to back up historically for a moment and answer the question, why is Rome even involved in this at all? Why is this not just a Jewish problem? Because so far, everybody in the story is Jewish, right? The Jewish leaders, Jesus, a Jewish rabbi. Why is this a Roman problem? Well, you know a map is coming, right? This is going to happen. So Roman presence in the land predates the coming of Christ by about 60 years. Back to a time when Israel was one of many nations across the globe that were being vacuumed up by the Roman war machine. Sometimes we forget how big the Roman Empire was in the time of Christ. Everything you see up there in that light purple color belonged to Rome at the end of the first century. It is an absolutely massive empire. You see the red dot there? That is, of course, in Italy. That is Rome. And, of course, you see the blue dot, which is always Jerusalem. Very good. And you see with those white arrows, they had already, uh, they had already gotten a whole bunch of territory to the west, but they also had this slow, steady creep towards the east by those white arrows through, through uh, Illyricum, through Macedonia, through Greece, through Asia Minor, turning south into Syria and eventually to the land of Israel. So they'd accumulated all that land. And as the Roman legions steamrolled across the map, the big challenge they had, and every nation that expands has this challenge, how do we secure and administrate all this new territory and all these people groups that are coming as a part of our rule? How do we do that? And the, the most common way they did that was they would look for local strongmen that they could trust, people that they could put in power to govern their own people, but ultimately were puppet rulers, puppets loyal to uh, the state of Rome. And in Israel, for 25 years, they struggled to find somebody who could do that. Until the year 37 B.C., they found their guy, somebody who would be a, the perfect Roman puppet, and we all know his name. He's Herod the Great. 37 B.C., they put Herod the Great in power. He is the perfect man for the job because he comes from an elite family. He has deep roots in this region. His father had come to the aid of Julius Caesar when Caesar was trying to subjugate Egypt. So there's a connection there. And even after Caesar was assassinated, Herod built a relationship with Caesar's successor, Mark Antony. And it was Mark Antony who crowned Herod as sole ruler over Judea in 37 BC. And then eventually, Herod is going to take the, take the title Basilius, or king of the Jews. Now, the interesting thing about Herod is he's actually technically not ethnically Jewish, even though he's the king of the Jews. His father was an Idumean or an Edomite, which means his line comes from not Jacob, but, but Esau. Esau on his father's side, and he's Arab on his mother's side, Nabataean to be exact. So in a world where race and tribe and ethnicity meant everything, the Jewish people feared Herod because he was crazy and powerful, but they never really loved him. Despite his many attempts to try to win the favor of the Jewish people, including expanding the temple, they never loved him. But Herod did have a spectacular 33-year rule as king. He is the perfect combination of brilliance and insanity. That's the best way to describe him. And even today, everything that he built in the land dominates uh, Israel. He dies about the year 4 BC, right after the slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. And at his death, Caesar Augustus, who is now the, the emperor in Rome, steps in and he orders that Herod's puppet kingdom be divided between his three surviving sons. By the way, he had murdered two of his own sons, so he's only got three left. So Augustus orders that it be divided. And here's, a, here's just a map so you can look at it. He had a son named Herod Philip, who was given power over the region you see there in the far northeast. He had a second son. We know his name, Herod Antipas. Antipas was given uh, power in, in Galilee and in Perea, which is that land east of the Jordan River. And then there was Herod Archelaus. And he was given the prime real estate uh, of this land. He was given Idumea, Judea, and Samaria. Archelaus was given the highest of titles, ethnarch of the people, and he was given power to rule in Jerusalem. So his kingdom gets broken up, and, and all Rome needed from these three guys was to do the basics, to get along, 
to keep the peace and to keep tax revenue flowing. Don't rock the boat. And both Philip and Antipas were able to do that, but Archelaus ruled like a thug. He was violent, he was unstable, and he irked the religious establishment in Jerusalem, so much so that the Sanhedrin sent word to Rome saying, we cannot tolerate this guy. You have to replace him, otherwise we won't be able to control the people. And so Rome responded to that. They came and they seized Archelaus in the year 6. They banished him to Gaul and they replaced him with a new ruler. Now, not in the way the Sanhedrin had hoped for. Because Augustus said, you know what, that land's pretty precious and it's pretty volatile. I'm not going to put a Jewish ruler there. I'm going to send a Roman to administrate that part of the land. So the Sanhedrin had these designs upon sort of uh, sneaking in the back door and, and destroying Herod's family line, but it backfired on them because what did they get instead? They got a Roman. They got a Gentile who is now, this is how we end up in the time of Christ with Roman procurators like Pontius Pilate governing the fairs of Jerusalem, right? This is why we find such a strong Roman presence in the land at the time of Christ. The Sanhedrin tried to get rid of Herod and his family, but it backfired to them. They got Romans instead. So let's talk about Pontius Pilate. Who is he? is the arch villain of history, is he not? What do we know about this guy other than the fact that we pronounce his name wrong, <laughs> right? Greek, Greek students, what, how should we pronounce it? Pontius Pilatus, right? That's his, technically his name. We ju I'm just going to keep saying Pilate so I don't confuse you guys. But we have almost no historical information about Pilate, uh, about his life before he's stationed in Israel. What we do know is he's the fifth Roman procurator to take that office, and that he serves for 10 years between the years 26 and 36. We know that he was appointed, uh, he was suggested by the chief administrator of a new Roman emperor, Augustus at this point has died, and Tiberius comes to power in the year 14. And we have some pretty good information about his life after his demise from two sources, from Josephus, the Jewish historian, and from a, a historian named Philo of Alexandria. How many of you guys have heard of Philo? Very important source for that time. Here's what Philo says about Pilate. These are the words that Philo uses to describe Pilate. Inflexible, stubborn, rude, cruel, and murderous. Other than that, great guy. Great guy. What's interesting about Pilate is up until recently, there was no archaeological proof that this guy ever even existed, which, of course, atheists love to throw that stuff up at our faces and say, yeah, your Bible's not historically true. But like so many other things, given enough time, what happens? Biblical history bubbles up to the surface through archaeology. And in 1961, Italian archaeologists excavating the great Roman theater in Caesarea dug up this large limestone slab that had a partial inscription on it, and guess whose name was on it? Pontius Pilate. In fact, here's what it looks like. It's called the Pilate Stone. And uh, we're going to see this when we're in Israel in November. You'll see this stone. By the way, Israel meeting tonight at my house, if you didn't know that. Uh, 6.30, if you're going to Israel, make sure you're there tonight. We'll see this, right? Scholars believe that this, this stone was carved in honor of the emperor at the dedication of a temple to his name. And that was common back then. You would, you would, if, you were, if you were Pilate that far from Rome, you would build a temple to the name of your emperor to Tiberius. And so you see there, there's actually, there's actually four lines of partial text on it. The first one says Tiberium. That apparently was the, the name of the structure itself, the temple, Tiberium. Then the second line, you have the last three letters of Pontius and the full name of Pilatus. The third line says prefect of Judea. And the fourth line just says has dedicated. So what this tells us, yeah, Pontius Pilate was a real historical figure, and he lived and served in a time frame that matches the biblical record. Now, there's some historical events you need to know about if you're going to fully understand why Pontius Pilate felt so strongly that he had to condemn Jesus. Because we all know the end of the story, Pilate says, this guy's innocent, yet he condemns him anyway. Well, why? Well, there's a couple things you need to know about his background, and I'll do this briefly. From day one, of his post in Israel, Pilate had made a whole bunch of religious and cultural gaffes, and he had made everybody mad. And again, this is a, Israel, especially during this time, is a tinderbox. 
And as a Roman, as a Gentile coming into rule, he had to be very careful about setting that place ablaze, but he made all kinds of mistakes. Uh, two of the things that he did, and by the way, every mistake made in, in, in uh, Judea got back to Rome, and that's a problem for, for Pilate. So two of the incidents involved really, and the best way to describe it, Roman elites doing what normal Roman elites do, and that is bragging about the glory of Rome and the power of Rome, things that you could do in certain parts of the world but you couldn't do in Israel because of the religious sensitivities. And I'll put some pictures up here to, to give you an example. Things like flying your standards with a bronze eagle at the top of the pole. That did not sit well in Israel. Or parading through the streets with a bust of the emperor. Or hanging your legion's golden shields on your fortress. And repeatedly, Pilate would do these types of things, and he would provoke the Jewish leaders, and, because they considered them what? Graven images. To have those things in Jerusalem was an abomination to Yahweh, especially if they communicated emperor worship, which was the intent. And so what would happen is the Sanhedrin would complain, and Pilate would be stubborn, and there'd be this back and forth, and riots would break out, and then Pilate would have to send in soldiers, and they would kill Jewish citizens, and you had this cycle repeating itself. The third incident, which is interesting, is Pilate ordered an aqueduct built to bring water from the Bethlehem area up to Jerusalem because the water had not had become inadequate. And there was massive uprisings in the land over this, not because of the aqueduct, but because of how Pilate paid for it. What he decided to do was go to the temple treasury and use temple funds to pay for this aqueduct. So imagine Jewish worshipers putting their offerings into the temple treasury designed to worship Yahweh, and this Gentile comes in and steals the money. So again, riots and all kinds of things. The people are outraged. So the Jewish people are seething against Pontius Pilate. And in this moment, Herod Antipas, who again is outside of Jerusalem, ruling up in Galilee, he takes this opportunity because he's so clever. He says, I'm going I'm to get a little uh, uh, edge here, a little power. He sends a formal complaint back to Rome with an emissary saying, this Pilate guy you sent us is out of control. And the emissary comes back with a stamped letter from Emperor Tiberius, and it's a rebuke of Pilate. He basically says, knock it off. I want peace in Jerusalem. Knock it off. So all that to say as we get into the story, number one, the Jews hate Pilate. Number two, Pilate couldn't care less because he hates them just as much. It's a very antagonistic relationship. But number three, because of the past history, when the chief priests come to his doorstep with Jesus as prisoner, he has to tread extremely cautiously. He cannot afford another bad report to get back to the emperor because as a Roman governor, that's how you lose your job. That's how you lose your title and your honor and maybe even your life. So all that's going on as we get to our story. So look at verse 28. John 18, 28. Remember, Jesus had been tried, sentenced by Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin. It says, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Now, what is that? Well, for centuries, that question has been debated. Where is this thing called the praetorium? More importantly, where exactly was Jesus tried before Pilate? Where was he condemned and sentenced? Well, for many years, scholars argued that it must have been at the Antonia Fortress, and we've looked at that in recent weeks, right, just off the Temple Mount. But more recently, and archaeology is beginning to bear this out over the last 30 years or so, it's more likely that this praetorium that's referenced by all the gospel writers was connected to Herod's palace on the west side of the city. So you know you're getting a map again, right? So, okay, so I've, I've shown you this map a couple times, but now we've got some new things on it. We saw where Gethsemane is, right, where Jesus was arrested. We looked at the house of Caiaphas, that light blue dot, which is likely where he was tried. That's the traditional site, but it's, it's very, very possible where he was tried by Caiaphas. You see the Antonia Fortress up in purple. That's where for a long time people thought, well, that's, that must have been where he was, he was tried because that's where the Roman barracks are. But I'm convinced it's actually in that red square, which is called Herod's Palace along the western wall of the city. So let me explain why. Normally, a Roman procurator like Pilate would reside and rule from the coastal city of Caesarea, 
port city. Why? Because Herod the Great literally built Caesarea as a Roman-styled city so that his Roman friends, when they came to Israel, would feel at home. So it's a beautiful place. Again, we'll go there in November. So normally in Caesarea, but during the high holidays, it was standard operating procedure for the procurator and his imperial guard to travel to Jerusalem and stay within the city limits. Now, where would he choose to stay? Probably not the Antonia Fortress. That's where the barracks are for the soldiers. It's pretty lean. But Herod's palace, by far, is the most luxurious place in the entire city, second only to the temple in terms of its size and its splendor. So that's probably where he's going to go stay and probably where Jesus is brought to be tried. So here's a photo. When you go to Jerusalem, there's this life-size model that you can visit, and we'll see it in November. So you can see where, see where the Temple Mount is, the Antonia Fortress, and that yellow outline is where Herod's palace is. It's on the opposite side of Jerusalem from the Temple Mount, on the western side. Okay, and it's huge. It's a huge compound, a huge complex, and very, very luxurious. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. Back to verse 28. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. We'll explain that in a second. Look what it says. And it was early. Okay, now you know about Pilate's history with the Jewish chief priests. You know how he feels about them. Can you imagine his temperament when he hears that at the first sign of light on this Friday morning, right, these religious crackpots are knocking on my door and they have a prisoner. This would be like you or I getting an emergency text, 911 at 6 a.m. before you've had coffee. Okay? They're going to wake Pilate up with this thing, right? And it says, look what it says in 28, and they, they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. So this delegation of chief priests, picture it in their flowing robes, right? The whole thing. They come and they've got this prisoner. And they come to the edge of Pilate's compound, but they don't go any further. And they're in a bit of a hurry because why? They've been up all night dealing with this particular case. And what they want to do is very quickly and efficiently hand over Jesus to the Romans to do their bidding. You guys finish the job. You execute him because we want to get back to observing the Passover which in this context is not just a single meal, but it's the whole seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We want to get back to the party. So imagine the chutzpah here. And I, it's a great Jewish word, Yiddish word, right? Imagine, procurator, we want to offload this guy to you so that we can get back to our religious celebration without being defiled by you or your silly palace. So here you go, take him. That's basically what's going on here. Now, this brings up the biggest controversy in the debate over the Praetorium. Where is it located? All right, archaeology nerds, unite. Here we go, okay? So let's look, okay, let's zoom in on this picture you see here, overlooking, this is what, this is what the model says the, the palace of Herod looked like. So we know the Jews refused to enter the compound. And what we're going to see in John's story is Poor Pilate's got to go in and out and in and out and in and out because they won't budge. They're going to stand outside so they're not going to be defiled, right? So where, where were they standing? Where is this place where this crowd eventually is going to gather that screams crucify him? Where is that, right? So there's two options. Number one, and this is sort of the traditional option, is that there was some type of a courtyard, that yellow outline, where where, where uh, uh, Pilate had a bema seat, and that's where he would judge people, right? And that archway there is, is the, the door he was going in and out so the Jews wouldn't be able to, uh, wouldn't be defiled, right? The problem with that is there's not any archaeology to support a courtyard there like that. Now, again, digs are always happening in Israel. Ten years from now, they might find it. But for now, they haven't found anything there. The other option, which I think is very interesting, is there is archaeological evidence that right where that blue arrow is, there was a stairway and a monumental gate into the city, right into Herod's palace. And that could be the place where the people gathered. In fact, the, the stones that date back to the first century are still sitting there outside the wall. You can see the remnants of, of the foundation of a, of a set of stairs and this platform that would go up to a, a monumental gate into the city. And if that's true, if this is the right place, this is what that scene might have looked like on the day that, that Jesus was judged. So, the peop so basically, the, 
the Jews were willing to come up onto that platform, but not through that gate, not through that door, because that would defile them into what's called the praetorium. They would not go in there, but that there was this bema seat outside the city wall where Pilate would judge the people. So that's, that's possible. We don't know for sure, but it's a very interesting thing to consider. Okay, archaeology aside, thank you for nerding out. Look at the stunning irony in this statement in verse 28. These religious leaders won't enter the praetorium for the sake of what? Purity, ceremonial purity. But at the very same time they're doing that, they are unjustly manipulating the legal system to put an innocent man to death. Right? So they're going to strive to keep every little detail of their man-made regulations while scheming to commit murder. And this is exactly one of the things that Jesus rebuked them for in the temple square. Remember he said, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. It's exactly what he was talking about. And what a warning to all of mankind about religious hypocrisy. God despises religious hypocrisy. And for you and I to consider too. So because we have a tendency, we look at these stories looking back in history and we scoff at these people like, oh, how spiritually blind could they be? But does this not happen today where we're so good at maintaining all the little external standards of religiosity, but as Jesus says, still neglecting the weightier provisions of the law, things like justice and mercy and faithfulness? We all need to examine ourselves to see if that's true of us. As churchgoers, how many times have you heard a story like this? Some professing Christian commits adultery. Or some uh, professing Christian divorces his or her spouse without any biblical grounds. Or a well-known Christian defrauds other people in business. They have a secret addiction problem or they're secretly abusive in the home. And yet we say, but they're in church every Sunday. Man, they gave consistently to the ministry, right? They served in this role or that role. They, they, they said all the right things. They quoted scripture. They said, well, I'm available to counsel other people. And then you find this out about what was really going on. So be, lest we just scoff at these blind leaders and, and their pride and say, oh, that could never happen to us. We need to examine ourselves and make sure that we too are not being religiously hypocritical. Just worrying about the outside of the cup, but not what's on the inside. Amen? Okay, verse 29. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? So again, picture it. Jewish delegation, flowing robes, the whole thing. They refuse to walk through that archway. They're standing out here. And poor Pilate, he's got to go out to them to keep them ritually pure. And by the way, no matter what you think about Pilate as a man, the Romans took the, the law very seriously. It was a great source of pride in their lives. So so Pilate would have taken this idea of being the judge uh, very, very seriously. And so he asks publicly, as he should as a judge, for the indictment to be stated out loud. What is the accusation that you bring against this man? And the answer from the Jewish leaders is so disrespectful. Look what they say in verse 30. They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So right here, right here, get this now, is where all the past tension bubbles up to the surface between Pilate and the chief priests. Basically, they're saying, look, procurator, do you take us for fools? Why would we waste our time bringing this man to you if he wasn't a criminal? It's a, it's a subtle way to remind Pilate that he is in a vulnerable position. They're saying, look, there's no need for you to ask questions or try him. Trust us. We wouldn't be here, so just trust us. See, they didn't really want Pilate to judge the situation. They had done that already. It's settled in their minds. What they need from Rome is just to carry out the preferred execution. That's it. But, interestingly, they're trying to throw their weight around here. Pilate is in no mood that early in the morning before coffee to get pushed around. Verse 31, So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. And I can picture Pilate's mind saying, look, you bother me at first light. You make me come all the way out here because you don't want to be defiled. And this is what you bring me. If this man is, is guilty, then you punish him. You have your law. Go do what you have to do. It's a Jewish problem. It's not a Roman problem. But look what the Jews respond. They say, oh, but we're not permitted to put anyone to death. 
See, this is a game changer. It's a capital punishment case. Now Pilate knows. See, the Romans were gracious in allowing their, sub, their subjugated territories to, to have a certain amount of self-government. Most of the time, they had the freedom to, to make laws and to enforce their laws and to punish lawbreakers. Rome always said, we reserve the right to jump in at our discretion, but for the most part, they wanted to be hands-off to let local rulers rule. But the one exception was capital punishment. That right had been taken from Israel way back when Herod Archelaus had been removed. And so the Jewish delegation now reminds Pilate, procurator, as you know, and again, I, I picture sort of sarcasm, as you know, we're not allowed under your law to do what we need to do. Now, this is interesting because there's something going on here. There's something behind the scenes because in the past, the Jews had had no problem putting people to death without Rome's permission. There's many examples of it, and we know in the future from Acts 7 that Stephen is going to get stoned to death, and nobody, nobody even talks to the Romans. There's, there's no evidence that Rome even knew that Stephen was being stoned to death. So what's going on with the case of Jesus? Guys, this has been a huge source of debate in the, in the Christian world. Scholars have looked at it, and there's a couple theories what's going on. First, you could say, well, look, here's the difference. In the past, People would get stoned by the Jews, but that was mob violence. They just lost control of their emotions. And this is different because this is a formal indictment from the Sanhedrin. And there's truth to that. Or you could say, well, right now is Passover season, so emotions are high and it's dangerous to execute a criminal and possibly provoke the crowds. You could say all that and that would be true. But here's, here's an, another possibility, and I find this very interesting. Some scholars believe that the chief priests would not have been satisfied with Jesus being stoned to death. They didn't want that. They wanted him crucified. And they couldn't crucify people. That's beyond their, what, what they're allowed to do. They would have to get the Romans involved if they were going to hang Jesus on a cross. Now, what would be the point of that? It goes back to the Torah, back to Deuteronomy 21. Moses explains that if a man commits a sin worthy of death, if he's hung on a tree, he's considered accursed by God. He's cursed by Yahweh. So it's possible that the chief priests were so threatened by Jesus, so threatened by his messianic claims, that their goal here was to destroy Jesus' reputation forever. If we can get him crucified for the rest of time, it will go down as this man was cursed by God. That may be the plan. Little do they realize that later Christians are going to wear that curse as a badge of honor, right? We celebrate the fact that Jesus took that curse on in order to redeem us. As Paul's going to write in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. They couldn't have planned that, right? And, and here's the thing. Regardless of the scheming of the Sanhedrin, they were not in control of how this was going to play out. They weren't. Because man schemes and God laughs, right? Because he's sovereign. The fact is, multiple times in the gospel, Jesus had prophesied exactly how he was going to die. He's going to be lifted up to death. He said it multiple times. And in fact, John references it here. Look at verse 32. The Jews said, we're not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, right? Jesus' prophecy, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So Jesus said, look, I am going to be lifted up to death. I am not going to be thrown to the ground and stoned to death. And he's sovereign over this, right? God is in control. God is, this is amazing to me. God is ordaining this whole thing to the extent that he is using the real choices of sinful, wicked men to bring about the result that he desires. God's able to do that. Even allowing sinners to do what they want to do, Judas, the Sanhedrin, doing what they want to do and then ordaining and, and funneling it right down into his purposes. Jesus is going to die exactly as he said he would. Okay, so what I want to do here as we look at verse 33 is let's turn our attention to the, to the thing that John John gives us more information than any other gospel writer about the private conversation between Jesus and Pilate. So let's go to that. Verse 33. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium, 
So he's come out to the Jews, and now he has to turn back and go inside because these guys won't budge. And it says he summoned Jesus, meaning he went back into the praetorium. They said, bring the prisoner. So they bring Jesus into the praetorium, and look what he says to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, where did he get that accusation? Because John doesn't talk about that. Well, Luke tells us, right? Luke tells us that this delegation did, in fact, lay out three specific charges against Jesus. Number one, that he was, quote, misleading the nation. Number two, that he was forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. And number three, that he was calling himself the Christ and calling himself a king. Now, when you think about that, what do those three things have in common, those three charges? They are framed, and we, we see this in our world all the time, in such a way to intentionally light the flame. To, to pique the interest of a Roman governor. You put the words taxes and, and king and Caesar into your charges, and a Roman governor has to pay attention. But now Jesus has led to him, and now he's getting for the first time this sort of up-close look at this man that he's been told is such a menace that he has to die. But what does he see? What does he see? Listen, I guarantee you, Pilate had seen wild-eyed revolutionaries before. He, he knows what they look like, what they sound like. But he looks at this man standing before him. What does he see? Like a Galilean working man. This is not a king, right? He has no servants. He has no soldiers fighting for him. He has no expensive clothing, no jewelry on. So you can imagine for, you got to get your, your head in here, as a Gentile Roman leader, how do I square this? This man and this idea of being a king. So what, how's Jesus going to defend himself? Well, what Jesus does is he, he does what he always does. He keeps his opponents off balance. He answers Pilate's question with his own question. Verse 34, Jesus answered, so he, you know, he ignores that. He says, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? In other words, procurator, is that your assessment about me? That I'm a king? Or are you just parroting the charges of my enemies? And look what Pilate snaps back in verse 35. I'm not a Jew, am I? Right? Your own nation and your chief priest delivered you to me. You get a sense that that agitates him, right? I asked you a question. You, 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 sort of, you sort of accuse me of being a parrot for your enemies. I'm not a Jew. You tell me. And then he says, here's the real question. So what have you done? What have you done? He's like, I don't get it. I'm not a Jew. Help me out here. You tell me, why do those men outside want you dead so badly? Again, he's reconciling, trying to reconcile the, the look of this man with this threat, and he's not seeing it. I think he suspects at this point that there's, there's some hidden motive from these guys outside, that whatever Jesus has done is not as serious as they think. They just want this guy out of the way. But Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's question, what have you done? He controls the agenda of the conversation by going back to the nature of his kingdom. Look at verse 36. Jesus answers him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm it's not of this realm. So am I the king of the Jews? Well, it depends what you mean by that. If you mean, am I a political king of Israel that's trying to overthrow Rome? Obviously not. I'm no threat to you, but I do have a kingdom. I do have a kingdom. It's just not the type of kingdom you can understand, Pilate. You just can't get it. It's not of this world. It's spiritual. And look, that's why nobody's fighting to prevent this. Because it's spiritual. My kingdom didn't come about through all the things that you understand, procurator. It didn't come about through war or conquest or slavery. I'm a king by my very own nature. I regenerate the hearts of my own subjects. I give them eternal life. I call them my children, my very own. So, look, Pilate's listening to this going, spiritual kingdom. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't comport for a Roman, a spiritual kingdom. How could he fathom this? I, did he think Jesus was just a little bit cuckoo? 
Maybe. Maybe he thinks that. But how could this man be a threat? That's what he's dealing with here. It's a puzzle. He's still struggling to figure it out. But he was listening carefully. Look at verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. And here comes Jesus' key statement. For this I have been, what? Born. And for this I have come into the world. For what purpose? To testify to the truth. So Jesus lays out before this Roman prefect the mission of his incarnation. For this reason I have been born. And that's an obvious reference to his humanity, right? For this reason I was physically born into this world, born of a woman. But then he says, and for this I've come into the world, referring back to that his kingdom is not from this realm. I've come from another realm, a spiritual realm, into the physical world. And I think that's a reference to his, to his deity, to his preexistence. The fact that he came from one age into this world, from preexistence into this world, his deity. And the purpose of his mission in the flesh is all centered upon this thing that, that Romans actually held quite dear, veritas, the truth. It's all about the truth. I have come to reveal the truth about the Father to mankind. How many times has Jesus said this in John's Gospel? I have come to reveal the Father, the truth about him, to show the world who God is. In fact, I was sent into that world for this promise. I am the very enfleshed word of God. I am the very enfleshed word of God. Paul agrees with that, right? He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the beginning and the end. Hebrew says he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and being. To this, Jesus testifies. This is the truth. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. It's by truth that his subjects come into this spiritual kingdom he's talking about. His kingdom is a kingdom of eternal truth. It is not the type of earthly raw power that men like Pilate want to wield. And further, then Jesus says to Pilate, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now, that is, that is what we look at. That's the mic drop moment. Because he looks at Pilate and he says, everybody, everybody who's of the truth hears my voice. If you're seeking truth, you'll hear my voice. So, procurator, do you have ears to hear? It's almost an evangelistic moment, isn't it? Do you have ears to hear? Because if you're of the truth, you care about truth. If you're of the truth, you'll hear my voice. But tragically, Pilate sneers at Jesus' statement. He does. He says, what's truth? What is truth? In verse 38, it's a deadly cynical response. It's filled with sarcastic doubt. What is truth? Your truth? My truth? What's truth? And here's the truth standing right in front of him, but he can't see it. He doesn't have eyes to see. He says, uh, this is why I picture him thinking in his head. Okay, king of the Jews, you want to know what truth is? Caesar is truth. Rome is truth. Soldiers are truth. Political power is truth. That's my truth. So Pilate gives up here in like a huff, right? And he breaks off the interrogation. He's like, this guy is not a revolutionary. He is not a threat. He's a dreamer. He's a religious kook. This has nothing to do with Rome. And he leaves the praetorium once again. He goes back out to the Jews and he says, uh-uh, not guilty. Not guilty. There's nothing here. It says in the end of verse 38, I find no guilt in him. Pilate speaks more than he knows, right? I find no guilt in him. Because there's no guilt to be found. There's no sin to be found in Jesus. And he admits it. I can't, I haven't discovered anything. And so ends phase four of the trial. Should be over now, right? The, any self-respecting judge who, who, who believes in truth, who has integrity at this point says what? Release the prisoner. Right? But Pilate is still uneasy. There's something going on here, I think, that he can't quite understand. Here's what he knows at this point. He feels boxed into a really bad situation. On the one hand, he has to avoid angering these Jewish leaders. It's a tinderbox. On the other hand, if I just give in to all their demands, then I look weak, and that's not good for my rule. And you know what? I don't want to crucify an innocent man. So he's boxed in here. Now, 
Between verses 38 and 39, Luke tells us that a fifth phase of Jesus' trial takes place. I'll cover it really briefly. Pilate knows that Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, is in Jerusalem, as he should be, for the Passover. He's likely staying at the Hasmonean Palace in the upper city, and he decides, I'll send Jesus over to him and try to get rid of this really sticky situation that I'm in. So it's a bit of a Hail Mary, as we say. Uh, but he thinks to himself, maybe Antipas is going to man up and he's going to deal with his problem. Why is it his problem? Because Jesus is from Galilee and Herod Antipas oversees Galilee. So, you know, in his, he's reasoning in his mind. So, you know, technically, G this Jesus is under his jurisdiction. Sends him over there, right? And Luke tells us Herod is thrilled to receive Jesus. Why? He's like a child. He's like, ooh, do a miracle, do a miracle. Basically, this is not a serious man. He, he wants to see a sign, Luke says. And so Jesus is not going to be his circus monkey. He's not going to perform for him. Jesus will not answer a single question that Herod asks him. Because why throw those pearls before swine? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, Proverbs says. So this is a very short part of the trial. It doesn't take very long. Jesus is going to remain silent. Herod's soldiers then mock him. They put a robe on him and they send him right back to the praetorium. That did not work. <laughs> Pilate's plan did not work. But he's got one more trick up his sleeve. He's got, uh, oh, light bulb, boop, I've got another idea. I've got one last thing, uh, another Hail Mary, right? He goes out to the Jews once more, and now a crowd has gathered, and he shouts in verse 39, you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Do you want your king? Guys, this is what weak men do. This is what weak men do. They try to pass off. They don't want to do hard things. They don't want to make hard decisions. They want to pass off the, the responsibility and try to weasel their way out of a difficult situation. Pilate's a weak man. I don't want to execute an innocent man, he thinks. And if I can get the Jews in this crowd to demand Jesus' release, then maybe the Sanhedrin can't be angry at me. He's a weasel. And yeah, you know, so we got to release a dangerous robber, an insurrectionist. You know, maybe he goes on to commit some crimes. But that's a small price to pay for my job and my peace of mind. What a scheme. It's selfish, it's weak, and it's short-sighted. But the biggest problem in this new scheme that Pilate has is that God says no. God's sovereignty is not going to allow it to go down this road. The crowd that is gathered to witness the end of this trial is a perfect snapshot of fallen, wicked humanity. And after being coached up by the chief priests, they indeed reject Jesus and they call for this Barabbas to be released instead. Verse 40, So they, the crowd, cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And we know from the other Gospels, this guy is this guy's likely a zealot. He's a, he's, a, he's a violent man. He's an insurrectionist. But that's the man that they want. That's the man that the chief priests want instead of Jesus. So should we be shocked by that? From a purely human standpoint, of course we should be. Who chooses a violent criminal over this peaceful, miracle-working rabbi? We should be shocked. It's the depravity of man on display for all to see. But here's the thing. It's the Father's plan. God sovereignly is going to shape all of this wickedness into his plan. Nothing is out of control here. Sometimes it's, it's, it's presented that way. Oh, this thing just got out of control. No, no, it's ordained. Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath, and he will be crucified. No matter how many ways Pilate tries to slip out of this, God's plan is going to come to fruition. Now, here's the ironic PS to the story. As you look at it, and you look at another picture, you're like, the chief priests are running this whole operation. They are in charge of everything, and there's this Roman procurator, and he's on the judgment seat, and all of that is true in a temporal sense. But what about an eternal sense? It's the exact opposite. Because I can tell you with absolute certainty that there will be a day when Annas and Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate and every Jew and Gentile in the crowd that day will stand before Jesus as the judge. And every one of them will bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So this is just temporary, folks. 
the situation will be very different in the end. All right, let me just wrap up this part of the story by just, just a few last thoughts. Imagine, if you can, the level of humility it takes on Jesus' part to put up with all of this mess. Imagine the humility, knowing who he is, all of the corruption that he is seeing play out before his eyes, all of the lying and the scheming and the, the physical abuse for the Son of God to be treated this way, passed back and forth like a common criminal by creatures of his own making. Imagine the humiliation, the condescension that this requires to just put up with it. When he could call 12 legions of angels, right? And the Father would make it available to him to just blow everybody away. But instead, he mildly and quietly and humbly submits. He's sinless. He's righteous. He's the Passover lamb without blemish. He's the king of truth. But here he is being maligned and accused and hated and mistreated and abused. Catch this. The judge of all the earth stood there quietly and was indicted by a fallen son of Adam. The judge of all things, the creator, judged by a fallen son of Adam. The Lord of glory stood there and was treated like a vile sinner. The Holy One of God had to stand there and listen to men call him a blasphemer. As we get closer to Good Friday, may we never forget what Jesus endured in this moment for us. This is our King and this is our Lord who for the joy set before him endured the cross and suffered the shame that came along with it. Why? So that he might bring many sons and daughters like you and I to glory. To glory. Consider him, Hebrew says, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise your name. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your, your plan and your purpose in all of this. Even as we read it, Lord, and we try to wrestle with the fact that for myself as a father, what it would, what would be like to see my child abused in this way, someone I love so preciously to, to be treated this way, and I know we cannot fathom that as human beings and how you feel about your son, but how hard that must have been. Father, thank you for your sovereignty and your plan in sending him to suffer and to die for us. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to take on this cup, that you were sovereignly willing to stand there and mildly and humbly be treated this way by creatures, by fallen sons of Adam. What an example it is for us, Jesus, to see the way that you served us in this way, that you were willing to die in our place, to be our substitute. And Lord, as we count down now to Easter, just in two weeks, and we prepare for Good Friday, Lord, I pray that you will seal these historical truths, these spiritual truths in our hearts, and you would cause us to worship you more than ever in our lives, that we, Lord, would be excited about what's coming to really celebrate the cross and the, and the empty tomb, and that this would be a transforming time in our lives for, for our good, Lord, but most of all for your glory. So thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name.